Is telepathy real? Can our minds sense future events? What is the relationship between consciousness and matter? Hi everyone, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, Adrian here. My guest today is Dean Radin, a scientist who has been exploring mysterious anomalies of consciousness for decades. As chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dean has conducted many scientific experiments testing the existence of telepathy, precognition, mind-matter interaction, and other anomalies of the mind. This field of study is controversial, but as we explore in today's episode, the evidence of some of these effects is overwhelming. So today, Dean and I discuss some of these phenomena and consider what they might tell us about consciousness and perhaps the nature of reality. Among other topics, we also get into Dean's experiments probing the observer effect in quantum physics and the possible role of consciousness in the collapse of the quantum wave function. I hope you enjoy today's episode of Waking Cosmos. These are really subjects that I find fascinating. Uh, remember, that if you would like to support future open-minded conversations about consciousness and reality, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. If I reach my goal on Patreon, my aim is to turn this into a full-time project, which is something that I would love to be able to do. So please consider checking out my Patreon page through the link in the description or just by going to patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. And of course, Patreon subscribers also get early access to every episode. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe if you haven't already. Hit that little notifications bell if you're listening on YouTube. And I, of course, encourage you to share this podcast with anyone that you think might be interested. All of that is really helpful, so thank you. All right, and now without further delay, I give you Dr. Dean Radin. Hi Dean, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good, uh, nice to have you back on the podcast. It's uh, always a pleasure to hear you talk about your research. And um, yeah, I really think that your work, specifically looking at psi effects like telepathy, precognition, mind-matter interaction, if they are real phenomena, as your work suggests, then their existence could have some pretty big implications to our understanding of the mind. and perhaps the nature of reality as well. So I'm really happy to be speaking with you again and uh, talking about some of this fascinating research that you do. Thank you. So I think probably a, a majority of our listeners will be aware of some of the evidence of Psy which is out there. And so generally I'd like to focus more of our conversation on the implications of Psy and what these effects might tell us about the mind and what consciousness is. But for the listeners out there that might be unaware of any of the evidence of Psy, Psy of course being a term for a number of effects like telepathy, precognition and other mental anomalies, what evidence would you typically point to, Dean, if you wanted to give someone a sense of the existing evidence and how conclusive it is at this point? Well, I would say that there's, there are three kinds of evidence. There's personal experience which is by far the, the strongest form of evidence that we know. There is anecdotal evidence, which are stories of experiences that are told by other people, and there are tens of thousands of such stories that you can find in books. And then the, the currency of uh, truth today is within scientific evidence, and the challenge there has been to take the experiences that people talk about and 
figure out ways of looking at them in the laboratory. So each of the classes of psychic phenomena that you mentioned, like telepathy and precognition, uh, each of the classes has been uh, turned into what are now thought of as classic forms of experiments. So to just name one, telepathy, it's the idea that somehow um, minds can communicate directly between each other without uh, shielding or distance seeming to make any difference. So when you put that into the laboratory, the uh, one of the classes of studies is called the Gansfeld experiment, which involves a not a sensory isolation, but a low-level, unpatterned sensory stimulation, uh, where after a few minutes in that condition, most people begin into a dreamy state or a hypnagogic state, and so they're they basically become starved for uh, input, and it makes it much easier for them to hallucinate or to get impressions about things. So the, that experiment has involves two people, you separate them, uh, make sure there's no ordinary way they can communicate, and then a randomly selected target, typically an image or a video clip, is sent from one person to the other mentally, and then the person who is the receiver in that experiment has to select the correct image out of a pool typically of four possible images. So by design this experiment means that the statistics are very simple, the, you can get the result correctly only one in four times if telepathy doesn't exist. And so 25% is the chance hit rate, and after almost 5,000 uh, sessions, where in each session involves a pair of people doing this kind of experiment in the lab, the overall hit rate is around 32%, and the odds against chance then can be calculated very simply, and it ends up being uh, a gazillion to one, where a gazillion means many, many trillions to one against chance. So that's one class of experiments involving conscious telepathy. And then there are several associated experiments involving not sending imagery or emotions to another person, but simply staring at them from a distance. So it's, again, this is now more like a mind to body interaction, but it's in the same class as two people communicating at a distance. And so that's a whole class of studies which again shows significant results. And there's several others including things like looking at brain correlations at a distance, so-called EEG correlation experiments, and those also show results. So if you look at all of the different kinds of experiments looking at telepathy, uh, you find a uh, convergence and a preponderance of the evidence showing that uh, in many different ways that we know how two people might be connected at a distance, you find evidence in all of the different classes. So you see this both in the meta-analyses of the different experiments and, as I said, in a meta-meta-analysis where you're beginning to look at uh, different lines of research pointing at the same effect that have been repeated in independent laboratories. So. That's, that's a, uh, a short run on, uh, on telepathy research. Sometimes you'll hear the criticism from skeptics that uh, telepathy, for example, couldn't be real because its existence would 
undermine science or it would undermine core principles in physics and so if it was real uh, we'd have to throw away our scientific textbooks and start again uh, but I have a feeling that you disagree with that. Well if you know anything about the history of science you realize that anytime somebody proposes something new there's an immediate backlash because and people will use exactly the same kinds of arguments that this violates the laws of physics, and this cannot be possible, and so on, until it's well understood and then it's part of science again. And this this happens predictably and regularly every 10 years or so, and somebody comes up with a new idea. And many times the reason that the new idea is proposed is because there are anomalies out there. There are things that science doesn't yet understand very well, but there's a lot of evidence for them. So you have two kinds of people in the world. You have people who uh, learn that the world is a certain way, and then they will defend that status quo with a lot of energy. Then you have others who, like myself, who pay more attention to the anomalies, the things that don't quite fit, because uh, that's the origin of why science is different than religion. That science can embrace an anomaly and try to figure out, well, why doesn't this seem to be to fit very well with what we currently understand? When we do understand it better, it could fall into two classes. In one case, it could be the anomaly was a mistake. But the other possibility is that the anomaly is telling us something that was wrong about our previous assumptions. And that's how science advances. I view the two kinds of people as some are much more interested in maintaining existing theory. And they'll base what they consider to be possible or impossible or impossible based on theory, whereas I'm much more interested in data. If the, if the data is not matching the theory, you need a new theory. You don't argue in favor of keeping the old theory, because otherwise that becomes dogma. That's a religion. I think, you know, the more we learn about physics and about nature, actually the more plausible side phenomena seems to become. Reality, it turns out, supports non-locality and retrocausation and really the deep interconnectedness that these side effects hint at. And, you know, as well, of course, is uh, consciousness seems more than ever likely to reflect a deep part of reality, according to, you know, a number of contemporary philosophers, at least. And so Psy is looking more plausible than ever, at least from a physics perspective. Yes, that's a good point. So the arguments that uh, these effects are impossible either because it violates physical principles, which typically refer back to physical principles known in the 17th century, or it's impossible because if it were real, then we would have detected it by now uh, through physics, like found mental particles or something like that, or it would be influencing everything that we already know especially a psychokinetic effect. And we don't see any evidence for that. Well, because you can flip that upside down and you can say, well, certainly physics as we know it today is much better than it was in the 17th century, but it's not complete. You don't understand everything. And you're right that the, the one thing that makes all of the psychic phenomena strange is that somehow information is passing beyond the, the bounds of space and time. And that is both a, a description of the strangeness of psychic phenomena and the strangeness of quantum mechanics and perhaps even relativity. So anyone who claims that the physical world 
is violated in some way by these phenomena, just doesn't know what they're talking about. In one of your books, I think it was Entangled Minds, you compared uh, results published in studies of telepathy as equivalent in their significance to a, a UFO landing on the lawn of the White House and just simply uh, getting overlooked by everyone. So given that you sort of suggested that Psy is largely uh, consistent with physics, to you, what is it that telepathy and other Psy effects reveal to us about ourselves, which is so significant as in, and important as to justify this comparison to a UFO landing on the White House lawn? Well, it's a shock to our to what we've been taught about the nature of reality. That, that's probably, that's one of the ways of thinking of it. That's where the the UFO and the White House lawn can't be ignored. It's a thing. It's right in your face. And telepathy, likewise, if somebody has an experience of telepathy or they simply pay attention to the evidence for it, then it suggests that the notion of separateness and isolation, which is what our everyday experience. Uh, tells us we, we feel like independent creatures, uh, especially we feel a sovereignty of our own thoughts, like our mind is inside our body, which is isolated from the rest of the world. Something about that common assumption is wrong. And and it's it's shocking when people realize this, that your thoughts are not just inside your head. Uh, your whole sense of, of self is not inside your head. It's somehow spread out through space and time. Most of the time, for most people, you don't, you don't get a sense of this extension through space and time, but it must be there all the time because when we test for telepathy in the lab, we're not creating telepathy out of nothing. We're allowing something which is already there to reveal itself. And so for most people, most of the time, we're talking about a pretty deep unconscious connection that somehow is connecting all people, all events, all objects, probably throughout the universe. It's just typically not consciously available, except in people who are highly talented in these kinds of things, and then they experience it much more often than the rest of us do. Generally, this podcast is aimed at exploring consciousness and how consciousness fits into nature, or uh perhaps how nature fits into consciousness, depending on from where you're coming at this. And certainly the last few years have seen a lot of new interest in philosophy and in science as well, of taking a more fundamental view about the place of consciousness uh, in reality. And I know that this is also a view that you support, uh, but I'm curious if this is due more to the research that you do looking at side effects, or is it more of the philosophical arguments, which is ultimately leading you in this direction? I remember a talk that uh, was given on telepathy by Chuck Honerton. This was probably about 20 years ago or so. And at the time, I think uh, I was viewing the various kinds of psychic phenomena as a, a thing uh, unto itself. So I like I'm interested in telepathy and this particular kind of experience and how we look at it in the laboratory. Or I'm interested in precognition or whatever it happens to be and not thinking of it in a larger sense. And so when Chuck was giving this talk, I uh, was talking about telepathy, and at one point he said, well, of course, what we're really interested in is the nature of consciousness itself. What is the, the role of consciousness in the physical world? And I was quite struck with that, because up until that point, 
as I said, I was thinking of the, each individual phenomenon as a thing without thinking of what are the, the larger implications. Well, the implication is that we don't really understand what consciousness is or what it comes from, but psychic phenomena are related to it in the sense that uh, it's not simply conscious experience or conscious awareness, but consciousness seen as a spectrum that uh, what I call little c consciousness, the thing inside your head, is a part of this spectrum, but there seems to be much more going on. So consciousness is fundamental is probably we might think of as a deeper portion of the spectrum, which maybe permeates all of space and time. Uh, So if you go hard in that direction, you end up being a philosophical idealist. If you go hard in the other direction, you might end up being more of a materialist, uh, but still interested in consciousness in terms of, well, how, how does the material world give rise to this sense of awareness that we have? But in both directions, you, you still have this puzzle of the one and only thing that we will each individually ever know, the most intimate thing that we can know is our own awareness, and yet it's also the thing that is we know the least about. So you think about interesting puzzles in philosophy and science, that's, I think, one of the reasons why philosophers certainly have been discussing this forever. But now it's reaching the point where scientists are seeing that not only is it an interesting puzzle, but there are ways of studying it as well. I have to say that I do like this idea of consciousness being matter or uh, matter and energy viewed from the inside. So the exterior nature of the world implies maybe an interior nature as well. And part of why I like this view is that it preserves the reality of consciousness as well as the reality of the world and of physics. And there is still a possibility of an elegant monism under this view. And I go back and forth a bit about whether this is better viewed as a kind of panpsychism or more of an idealism where consciousness is everything. But essentially this idea that there's an intrinsic interiority of the world from which our consciousness is derived. I do think that this is an attractive approach. Do you make much of a distinction between panpsychism and idealism? And neutral monism and dual aspect monism and yes, on and on. I don't, because I, I don't know at this point how to test which one of these explanations is better. I know that there are people from different traditions who will argue forever that their particular spin is the right one, but I, I don't know how to make the, the decision as to which one is correct. So I, I simply embrace all of them as uh, working hypotheses. What I, I do think is interesting is that If consciousness is fundamental in some way, either through a panpsychist approach or neutral monism or or whatever, it makes thinking about psychic phenomena, and for that matter also mystical experience, much, much easier than it does through a purely materialistic set of assumptions. So that's why after thinking about this for a while, I've I've moved my... uh, my stance from far more materialistic, which is where I started, into far more idealistic, which is where I currently am. I I think the distinction between idealism and panpsychism and even neutral monism as well that you mentioned, I think more often than not, what it really boils down to is 
a case of where we're placing our emphasis. You know, panpsychists, I think, are more keen to preserve the reality of the world. And yet they're often also happy to recognize that the essential nature of that world of matter is a kind of mental interiority. And so panpsychism and idealism, I think, are not necessarily at odds with each other. And certainly they're both moving in the right direction in recognizing this irreducible reality of consciousness and really the challenge that it poses to materialism. Yeah, I when when I say that I move towards idealism, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm denying the physical world. Uh, that, that's why I, I like to think probably I'm closer to neutral monism or something like that, where the physical world seems to be robust enough and probably doesn't require human beings around to observe it. Uh, science would not have advanced as well as we had if it was, if the physical world wasn't very stable in some regards. Because otherwise we wouldn't develop what we call laws in physics, these regularities that we see. So I expect that uh, consciousness is related in some way to um, perhaps the emergence of the physical world. But once that emergence happens, that uh, it the, the emergence property, the, the new properties of physics, whether it's energy or matter, seem to be pretty stable on their own. Like it doesn't continually need to be uh, supported by, in some way by, by consciousness. And the same is true for emergence from basic physics into chemistry and then biology and so on. Each of these layers of reality seem to be pretty stable by themselves. So I view consciousness then, if it's a fundamental, and it's somewhat in the same way that electrons are fundamental. That they, of course, permeate everything in physics, but they do in chemistry too, and they do in biology. We just, and probably psychology, we just don't normally think of it in terms of their, you're full of electrons. Well, you're full of atoms. It, it doesn't make much difference when you're thinking in, in terms of a, a larger or higher hierarchy. So maybe consciousness permeates everything. That's essentially the atomistic version of, uh, of consciousness in terms of panpsychism. It's an easy way to have consciousness permeate everything. I think it's actually more than that, but I, I understand the appeal of panpsychism because it's a way of uh, dealing with everything as an atom, which of course is very popular. I recently had a very interesting conversation with the philosopher Philip Goff, who is one of these philosophers who do argue in this direction that consciousness is fundamental. And um, in our conversation, I did try to get some of his thoughts about Psy, even though I've not really heard him talk about it before. And he was actually quite open minded about it. Uh, but he did uh, say something that I'd like you to respond to, uh, specifically relating to telepathy, because he pointed out, as you have, that current physics does have room for non-local connections, quantum entanglement, for example, being very well demonstrated. And so psi phenomena, at least in the case of telepathy, uh, maybe doesn't require that we depart from materialism or even uh, say that consciousness is fundamental, which of course he does. Uh, so I know that you've explored this entanglement approach to Psy, particularly in your book, Entangled Minds, which I highly recommend to everyone. But in your view, what is it about Psy effects that you think do require us to go beyond materialism and even go as far as this idea that consciousness is primary in some way? Well, I think it is true that uh, if you look at the history of what we think of as material or as energy, 
it has radically changed since the 20th century. From the beginning to the end of the 20th century, uh, our notion of what we meant by the word material was, was changed a lot. And I expect that that will continue. And so maybe at the end of the 21st century, what we talk about in terms of materialism will be much closer to what people currently call spiritual. I can, I can see that as, as an obvious trend in terms of, of what we're talking about. And as you said, that if you look at a, a quantum mechanical version of what we mean by material, it's much, much closer to the, at least the, the essence of, of the psychic experience is non-local connections through space and time. So do we, does, does that mean that uh, we will end up with a materialistic description of psychic phenomena? Yeah, it, it could well mean that. But our understanding of what we're talking about in terms of material will have changed radically. So I'm comfortable with that. I mean, since as a scientist, we're trained in the materialistic uh, tradition, and it has been extremely successful as a uh, as a doctrine in terms of trying to understand the nature of reality. So that could very well just continue and just become more and more sophisticated. And so maybe we'll end up with some sort of convergence between the notion that uh, consciousness is fundamental. Uh, maybe that will eventually mean the same thing as material is fundamental. They might converge, except that we'll see both of those words in completely different terms, or understand it in different ways. You've described uh, how psi might be like quantum entanglement, and there's clearly a lot of commonalities there. But, I mean, there are a number of ways in which psi is unlike entanglement, as we at least currently understand it. For example, with uh, quantum entanglement, there is always to the best of our knowledge, a prior contact between particles which establishes their connection and it's after that contact that their behaviours continue to be connected and it's very mysterious but that's entanglement as we normally think about it in physics but in the case of psi effects like telepathy which also seem to be non-local, there isn't necessarily this prior contact in the same way. Brains don't you know, typically touch other brains so it does seem to be different with in this respect to entanglement. So do you think telepathy really is entanglement or is it something else that maybe derives from the same holistic ground of reality or is it something completely different? Well, the, the way I talked about telepathy from an entanglement perspective was to, uh, it, first of all, if the Big Bang is a thing and we all started from a single source and everything's entangled from the very beginning. And it, it can't be unentangled. It could appear to be more difficult to measure the entanglement or to see it, uh, but, but it's always there. It's something that can't be broken. So from that perspective, uh, all minds and brains are physically entangled, and occasionally the experience reminds us of that. That's one way to think of it. The other way, though, is that in entanglement is, at least within orthodox quantum mechanics, meaning linear quantum mechanics, does not allow for signals. And that means that you, you can't send something from one person to another through, with the idea of entanglement. On the other hand, quantum mechanics is not finished. And if there were a nonlinear version of quantum mechanics, well, then you can send signals. And so perhaps that's what's happening. If the brain is quantum in some form, 
and certainly at a deep enough level it's definitely a quantum object but if it's operating as a quantum processor like a quantum computer in a nonlinear way then in principle it would be possible to send signals from one person to the other purely through their through their brain and mind so again we don't we don't know what the right answers are here but i think most of the arguments that uh, entanglement can't explain telepathy that probably is right if we're talking about uh, quantum mechanics as we understand it today unless we also accept the big bang in which case all brains and minds are entangled all the time we just don't notice it very often one of the things that you've become quite well known for is your experiments looking specifically at the observer effect in quantum mechanics which is many people I'm sure will be familiar with is this finding in quantum physics that a, a quantum system behaves in a way that appears to be connected to what we as observers can know about it and so one of the interpretations of the observer effect or the measurement problem as it's sometimes called is that there's something in the mental realm of an observer's mind which is playing a role here and gaining information about a quantum system is somehow a significant factor in how it's behaving and and of course you know there's been a lot of speculation in this area both from physicists and philosophers including some uh, serious consideration that consciousness is involved uh, david chalmers philosopher is looking at this very closely at the moment but Dean, you've actually done some of experiments that look directly at the observer effect and this possibility that consciousness is playing a role. So maybe you wouldn't mind summarizing a, a basic experiment of this kind, and then we'll go further into it. Well, these experiments started in the 1960s, long before I was interested in this at all. Uh, 1960s, I was 10 years old. So the idea was that... Uh, the notion of the nature of measurement, quantum mechanics, was discussed even by the founders of quantum mechanics in the 1920s and 30s because they recognized that one of the things that made quantum mechanics different than classical mechanics was that it seemed to involve the observer in some way, whereas in classical mechanics you don't need observers at all. So this raises the question of if you have a quantum event, especially one that is unpredictable, like uh, the timing of a radioactive decay or the time that an uh, electron tunnels through a forbidden energy zone. Those are quantum effects uh, and supposedly are fundamentally random. Nothing is known that would cause the, these effects to happen, but they spontaneously happen by themselves. So the idea was that if, if uh, observation somehow is interacting with these events, that if you wished, if your intention was such, to speed up radioactive decay times or slow them down or change how an electron pop, popped through a tunneling, maybe you could see that by looking at the statistics of lots of these events. So this is what gave rise to electronic random number generators based on quantum events to see does intention, observation of these events uh, change the statistics. So the answer is yes, it does. And so the, the studies that I've done now with uh, using a double slit optical system is based on this 50 years of previous studies, all of which are basically looking at the interaction between mind and quanta. So in that sense, all I've done is basically extended 
all of this previous research into a new realm. And even for the double slit work, it's, I wasn't the first one to do this. Uh, there are two studies that were published in 1998, uh, one by a physicist at York University in Canada, and then a, a replication of that effect by a physicist at the Pear Lab at Princeton. And so the York University lab did not find evidence that consciousness can change the, uh, the double slit interference pattern, and the lab at Princeton found that it could. So then nobody, nobody tried to replicate this study for 10 years, and I decided that uh, the study, it was interesting enough to try, and also the question about the nature of observation in the double slit system had become something that you saw uh, being discussed in the mainstream. So I decided to try it, and I first used a Michelson interferometer, found an interesting result, and then now a sequence of uh, five different double slit optical systems, uh, one of which was a single photon double slit, the others are continuous beam double slit systems. And overall, I would say the, the evidence is pretty clear uh, that there is an interaction between intention or observation and the behavior of the interference pattern. Uh, which is consistent with the pri prior 50 years of studies using random number generators. It seems to be a very similar kind of effect. Right, so just to summarize your more recent experiments, participants are essentially attempting to observe a quantum system psychically without any ordinary physical contact. And so the thought is, is that maybe by simply directing attention to the quanta in the quantum system, that w could change its state or reduce the wave pattern, reduce the uncertainty within the system. And one of the findings which really jumped out to me about these experiments when I first heard about them was that you separated your participants into two groups, those which meditated and have a lot of experience meditating and those which never meditate or do any kind of attentional training. And you found a very significant difference between these groups when it came to their results. So, Dean, why did you choose to divide the participants in this way? And how do you interpret their different results? Well, this experiment, any psychokinetic experiment, and many other psi experiments too, are abstract in the sense that the entire task is mental. And in most cases, the task also involves attention, especially if it's a conscious task. Like I, I ask somebody to do this with your mind and then keep doing it until I tell you to stop. Well, for most people who don't have training on attention, uh, they can do the task for a couple of seconds and their mind starts to wander. So if you work with a meditator, they're able to do the task better than someone who doesn't have any attention training. So that's why I started working with meditators. That's simply because they're able to follow the instructions of the, of the task better than people who, who don't know how to, to focus their mind. I mean, it's really that simple. So certainly on the face of it, I think that just the simple fact that there is a, a difference between these groups is a, a reassuring sign that what we're seeing here is a real effect and that it's not simply a problem with the design of the experiment because if it was a design flaw which was producing the effect then that flaw really ought to affect both of these groups in the same way and so 
it's a promising sign, at least, that some kind of psi is occurring in these experiments. Right. And so we, we took a, another tack uh, along the same lines, which was that we had people do this experiment while we're recording their EEG. And one of the things that happens when you are asked to attend to something, to mentally attend to something, you'll get what's called alpha desynchronization in the brain. That means that the alpha rhythm uh, that, that you may be measuring, if you ask somebody to close their eyes and meditate, they usually have pretty high amplitude alpha uh, rhythm. If you ask them, even with their eyes closed, to now concentrate on something, the alpha goes away, almost vanishes completely. So that's the, called a desynchronization, and it has to probably do with interference going on in the brain, different brain regions, that causes alpha to, to disappear. So we use that as a marker to see uh, how how much alpha was present when the person was doing the task in, in the concentration period. We typically would ask somebody to concentrate on a double slit or some other physical target for 20 or 30 seconds. It turns out to do, to do that in a one-pointed form of concentration is very difficult. Even experienced meditators can do it for 5 or 10 seconds, but you need very unusual people who can absolutely maintain the same attention for even 20 or 30 seconds. But nevertheless, you can use the, the performance results of their experiment, how well they were able to collapse the wave function, so-called, uh, and compare that against how long they were able to sustain their attention. And so if attention is in fact one of the important factors, you should find a positive relationship between their ability to concentrate as measured by their EEG and the performance of the task. And in fact, that's what we have found. And we've done that several, in several different kinds of EEGs and several different measures in several different experiments. And it seems to be a way of independently showing or in a secondary way of showing that it really does have something to do with the ability to focus on the system or at least focus their mind, and that would also not be expected if what we're dealing with is an artifact. So now having done a lot of these experiments, do you think that what the findings show is that consciousness collapses the wave function? How do you interpret the findings of your results so far? Well, so I originally devised those experiments as ways of looking at wave function collapse, but what happened was that uh, we, in one of the experiments, we ran it and the feedback, we usually give real-time feedback to the individual, <clears throat> which they can use as a way of uh, adjusting their focus to give a better result. So in one experiment, we accidentally reversed the feedback. So the feedback was getting better if there was uh, a sharpening of the fringes, which is the opposite of a collapse of the wave function. It would be like making it more wave-like instead of more particle-like. And that's what we found. We found that people were, in fact, improving their, uh, their results based on the feedback, which meant that during that experiment, rather than simply attention collapsing the wave function, it actually got sharper, it got more wave-like. And that suggests to me that what's going on is not a collapse of the wave function, but rather a kind of steering mechanism. And in quantum mechanics, it turns out that there is something called the quantum Zeno effect, 
which would be consistent with this. That if you're paying very close attention, or in a physics sense, you're measuring a quantum event and you're doing it uh, repeatedly, very quickly, you can freeze the uh, evolution of, of the system. This is one of the effects of repeatedly measuring something. Every time you do a measurement, it like freezes just for a moment. If you continually measure it again and again, <clears throat> you can slow down or even stop the evolution of the quanta. And so it, it becomes a steering mechanism to make it go either slow down or speed up the evolution of a quantum system, suggesting that the precise way that you are attending to a quantum system actually does influence it. So that's, I'm thinking more now as a quantum Zeno effect rather than simply a collapse of the wave function. Right, I think uh, David Chalmers also raised the quantum Zeno effect as a possible confound to this idea that consciousness causes the collapse of the wave function. I think another point here is that if, if you do believe that consciousness is fundamental and is everywhere to some degree, including in particles, then the question becomes, you know, if consciousness collapses the wave function, why do we ever see a, a wave pattern at all? Why don't particles collapse their own wave function? Well, we have, we're surrounded by particles all over the place, uh, and so maybe that is happening, right? So in, from a physics perspective, the idea of decoherence maybe a reason why uh, we see lots and lots of particles out there. Uh, on the other hand, everything is quantum all the time. Uh, and so you, you can't make the, the wave-like nature of reality to go away. Maybe what's happening is that you're simply causing some interference patterns to coalesce and make something look like a particle. And other times it's more diffuse and things look more like a wave. So perhaps that's, that's what's going on. We see wave in particles, but ultimately we can think of all of it as various uh, forms of interference that are happening. So before we move on from these quantum experiments, I just wanted to mention that if people are interested to know more about these specific studies that you've been doing, you gave a very good presentation about your findings, which people can watch on YouTube if they want. And this presentation now has over a million views, which is very impressive. I'm aware of this because it was actually me that uploaded it to the IONS YouTube channel a couple of years ago. Yes, thank you. Uh, so I'll put a link to that in the description of this podcast. And if people haven't seen it, I definitely recommend taking a look because the evidence, at least that there is a psi effect here, uh, has been, I believe, rigorously demonstrated and it's very convincing. It's a really an excellent talk. And I don't know of any other presentations that have been given at that conference, which have gain that level of attention, really. So one of the interesting things about that talk, that was 2016, I mentioned in it that there was a colleague at the University of Sao Paulo, a physicist, uh, who, who was in the process of replicating the effect, and he was very excited because he was getting very strong results. So, so that sequence is, has been completed now, and the paper has been submitted for publication. It involved a series of I forget exactly, but something like six or seven pilot studies, all of which showed very strong confirmation uh, of the same kind of effect that I was reporting. Of course, he did it completely independently in, in a different country, which was very nice. And then he did uh, three or four formal experiments in the sense that we pre-selected all of the aspects of the experiment in advance. So those experiments did not show an effect 
They didn't replicate even his own pilot studies, uh, but he, he did find rather than a, a mean shift, he saw a variance shift. And so this is, again, um, more in, in alignment with something like a, a quantum Zeno effect, where the precise nature of the feedback and maybe the participants involved, they are creating an effect, but it's not consistent from one person to the next. And so if you look at the variance of the results as compared to chance, it's, it, the variance is significantly too, too wide. You're, you're getting something, it, but it's pushing at both ends of the normal curve, if you imagine it that way. Uh, whereas a collapse of the wave function, if that's what was going on, you would only push it in one direction. That would be a shift of the mean. So since both of us have seen evidence that we're seeing an effect, but it's not uh, only going in one direction, that argues against the idea that this is simply a, a collapse of the wave function and more in the direction that somehow intention is pushing the interference pattern to go in one direction or the other. I'm curious how you think about psi effects in the context of evolution. Certainly, psi can be a source of information, and so it's easy to see that it could infer a survival benefit. So how do you think about psi in relation to evolution? Do you think that psi abilities evolved in a similar way to our other senses? What are your intuitions about this? I guess I, I, I don't see it as part of evolution, except possibly in a, a type of devolution, in that uh, psi phenomena, uh, all of the evidence suggests that it's bubbling up from the unconscious. Uh, this shouldn't be too surprising because virtually all of our perception is bubbling up from our unconscious. Uh, and our sense of the stability of the world is a construction by the brain. And some of it, it it's a very thin slice of what's out there. So occasionally these interconnections, which I think are basically out there all the time, it's simply part of the fabric of reality. Uh, it, it's built into us from the get-go. And so we uh, are probably evolving away from uh, being able to pay attention to psychic phenomena because we're distracted by everything. So you can hear my dog barking in the background. It pulls your attention away just a little bit from uh, what I'm saying. And if you now uh, extrapolate that to having your cell phone in front of you all day long, then we're constantly being distracted. Now compare that to somebody from an indigenous society a thousand years ago, there were very few distractions. You know, virtually all of the modern things that cause us to pay attention to things in front of us uh, weren't there. And it actually, you don't even need to go a thousand years ago, just a hundred years ago was extremely different. So the number of, uh, of instances of psychic phenomena were probably more frequent and probably and perhaps stronger uh, in a society where not only are culturally acceptable, but more that uh, the number of distractions were much, much less. So people are able to pay more attention to what was going on inside. There's, there's a, a, a twist to that argument, though, that a thousand years ago might have been much more dangerous to simply be a person because there are more predators and there was less protection and so on. So maybe there too people were distracted by simply trying to stay alive. So the place you would want to see then for uh, whether this idea that I'm suggesting is correct is something like a, um, 
a, an ashram or a protected space where people spent a lot of time meditating and were not constantly in, uh, in fear of their lives and also didn't have to worry too much about where they're going to get food. So I'm using the idea of an ashram as an example of that. And when you look at the, the lore about what happens with long-term meditation under those conditions, you find the, the spontaneous development of all of the various psychic abilities, in some cases becoming extremely strong. So this is most closely related to the yoga tradition, but many of the esoteric traditions and practices uh, were devised in such a way as to develop strong psychic abilities, much stronger than we, we typically see today. I think that something that you said elsewhere, which I found really interesting about this, was that what we might think of as our sixth sense of Psy might be better thought of as our primary sense. And what Psy effects are actually giving us an insight into are really fundamental aspects of consciousness. So, for example, that it has potentially non-local aspects and that perhaps may also exist to some degree outside of time or spread out in time in some way and so yeah this idea of yours that our so-called sixth sense is actually a product of our primary sense of consciousness is an interesting angle on this as well yeah this idea has been around for quite a while the probably the uh, most detailed and scholarly version of this idea of not a sixth sense but the first sense is by jim carpenter who wrote a book called first sense and it's all about this idea that uh, and your deep unconscious might be connected with everything in the universe. And that is essentially the first sense. And, and from that, it bubbles up into awareness. And some of those connections persist, even in conscious awareness, although conscious awareness is driven very heavily by, by local events, by your local senses and things in your vicinity. But because it is arising out of a feeling of connected with everything, occasionally people have those experiences. That's what we end up calling psychic or mystical, depending on how much of the interconnection is felt. So it's there all the time. It's always in the background. And so your, your question before was, are we evolving toward this or away from it? I think the answer is neither, really. That we, we see changes in terms of what people report and how often they talk about it and so on. But I think, again, that has much more to do with the nature of modernity in terms of distraction and also in terms of what we expect to be able to experience. So if, you're, if you grow up in a completely materialistic environment and you're taught the world is a certain way and certain things don't exist, you're much less likely to actually experience it because by the time something reaches conscious awareness, it's gone through all kinds of psychological filters. And if you don't wish to perceive the world in a certain way, then you simply won't. And so we see this in psi experiments, where if you simply ask somebody to get their sense of belief about psychic phenomena, the people who don't believe it tend not to perform very well in experiments, or sometimes they perform in a negative way so that they're actually performing well, except in the opposite direction. Uh, so our expectations and beliefs strongly modulate what makes it to conscious awareness, and not just in psychic phenomena, but basically any kind of psychological effect. And I think if psi effects were like the other senses, a question that would come up is why is psi 
not a more noticeable effect in our experience. You know, if it's possible uh, to know things at a distance, why haven't billions of years of evolution honed that to a very clear and discerning sense like sight and hearing and so on to the point where maybe uh, my girlfriend can telepathically remind me to pick something up for her when I'm at the supermarket. So yeah, why do you think Psy continues to be very subtle in our experience? Well, one reason now is that uh, we can remind people at a distance by texting them. In other words, we've developed technologies which no longer require us to use these kinds of abilities. Whereas if you talk to Aborigines in, uh, in Australia, for example, they would say that, well, for thousands of years, they did use telepathy for, for the very reason that you're saying, to remind somebody to do something who happened to be a thousand miles away. So we don't have any direct evidence that those stories are real, but I don't see any reason to expect that they're not real. The other thing, though, is that people have different talents. So somebody who is extremely talented in this domain actually and probably can use it pretty well. Uh, other people can have anti-talents, that they're the equivalent of uh, musically talented or uh, can't, can't sing a tune to save their life. So in every form of human performance, whatever it happens to be, there are always some people who are better at it and other people who are worse. In the case of psychic phenomena, uh, the vast majority, meaning over 90% of the population, including scientists and engineers, by the way, they report that they occasionally have an experience of this type. So they will either ignore it or they won't tell anybody about it uh, or, uh, or will forget about it. But for those who remember these experiences, typically, if it's dramatic enough, they will consider it one of the most interesting experiences of their life. And if it happens repeatedly, then the person starts to sense, well, they're, they're psychically connected with the world. So I have friends who fit into the category of talent, and their lives are saturated with these kinds of experiences, precognitions telepathic connections, all kinds of strange things, uh, all the time. And, and uh, at least in one case, a friend like that, we've done experiments with her in the laboratory, and she does extremely well in laboratory tests. So she's not making up her stories. They're probably exactly how, the way she describes. Other people have can't remember a single experience of this type, even though they may have had something and just misinterpreted it or assume that it was simply a coincidence or something. Uh, so I think that the actual, the, the experiences themselves are around us all the time, but uh, we're either taught not to talk about it or we, we simply forget it or dismiss it as a coincidence. Another area of uh, sci research that you've worked in is precognition, which is this apparent ability for minds to gain information through time in some way. And so it suggests, as we've already mentioned, that uh, mind in some sense could be spread out in time. And one of your significant contributions in this area is looking at possible unconscious precognition that we and perhaps other organisms uh, could have to future events. And you've called this unconscious precognition presentiment. So, Dean, what led you to predict that presentiment might exist and how did you then go about testing it? Well, like virtually everything else I've done, uh, it's a replication of what people reported earlier. 
that the, the one, one of the problems with having a field that is fairly small in terms of the number of people involved uh, is that somebody can come up with a very interesting idea, but uh, only a few people will ever read about it. And so we're more or less in the position of uh, reinventing the wheel a lot. So I came up with an idea and I thought, oh, this would be fun to try. Use physiological methods to see if there's unconscious precognition. And then I started reading the literature more and discovered, oh, well, people have done this 20 years ago, but then no one ever did it again. So uh, what I keep finding, even when somebody uh, will write to me uh, uh, who's not involved in the field, and they'll come up with something that they think is a, the first time anybody in the history of, of humanity has come up with this idea, and I have to disappoint them by saying, well, actually, there's this gigantic literature on this idea that you've just had. So in this domain, like many others, there's nothing new. What I did, though, was... I, I tried to, uh, as with all of the psi experiments, you take raw experience and figure out a way of testing it in the lab. So here's one of the raw experience that many people have have had, where you're you're driving uh, along a certain route to work, and you do this thousands of times, and you pass lots of intersections as you're going along the route. And so one day you're driving along, and you're coming up to an intersection, you have a green light. So you're, you're preparing to go through it at normal speed, but you get a, a weird feeling, a bad feeling about that intersection. And there's no reason to be concerned. Everything looks completely normal, but you start slowing down. And then you get slower and slower the closer you get to the light because it just doesn't feel right. And just as you reach the intersection, the truck barrels through the red light crossways. And you realize at that point that if you had continued going at the normal speed, you would have been hit broadside by somebody that was running the red light. So I call that a presentiment because there's no, there, there's no obvious sensory cues out there as to the fact that somebody's about to run a red light, but you felt it nevertheless. You paid attention to it, and in this case, may have saved your life. So that, that experience has happened to me a couple of times where I, when I approach a green light, normally I would just go through it. For some reason, I felt there's something wrong about this. And sure enough, it re reached the light and slowed way down, and a car blasted through the red light at 50 miles an hour. It would have, it would have hit me broadside, I'm sure, if I had did not slow down. Or at least a major accident would have happened in some way. So the question is, how do you simulate this in a laboratory environment so that you don't put people at actual risk, but you create the emotional content of that kind of event. And so I use pictures and then I use videos uh, of different kinds of emotional content, sometimes very calm and sometimes very emotional, and simply measured physiology before, during, and after with the idea that if you're about to have an emotional experience that your body will unconsciously begin to respond beforehand, a, a unconscious physiological effect uh, of a future event, so precognition. And so I, I did those experiments starting in the mid-1990s, and the first couple of experiments showed extremely strong evidence of this. It was replicated shortly afterwards by a colleague in Amsterdam, Dick Bierman, and then many other people started doing it, and by now there's something like 40 replications, and the results are very clear that 
almost any physiological measure that is used, whether it's the heart or the skin conductance or uh, pupil dilation or EEG, you see these presentiments of future events. The result is always a differential measure because we're looking at physiology before calm events and versus emotional events. And the stronger that contrast, the easier it is to see the, the result. So this raises a, a problem sometimes because you need a very strong contrast in order to see this effect in the laboratory because it's only a simulation of real life, right? You know, you're going through lots of green and green lights when you're driving, but it's only one out of a very small number uh, of such events that are going to produce an emotional response, namely when somebody runs a red light in the other direction. So in the laboratory, you're not in actual danger, and you're doing many, many repetitions of common emotional targets. So this means that the it's easy to show people calm targets. By definition, these are ones that are not going to push you. What you want to use for the emotional targets is extremely strong emotions. And generally, those are things that people don't want to see because they're, they, they, you get PTSD from seeing these kinds of images. But those are the, exactly the kinds of images that produce the biggest effect. So since you can't show people, or you shouldn't show people things that are going to disturb them too much, it means that the contrast of what generally shows up in a presentiment experiment is pretty mild. So it's like the difference between looking at a picture of an ashtray, which would be considered a calm picture, and a picture of a car accident. And not a bloody car accident, like a fender bender picture. That, that becomes an emotion. Or looking at a picture of a spider or something like that. So these are mildly emotional, and you end up with evidence. You do see a presentiment result, but it's pretty small. In terms of magnitude, it's small. It's much, much bigger if you use a much stronger contrast in terms of the images that are, are being used. You mentioned uh, Dick Behrman uh, replicating your study when it first came out. And I remember that he also made the point that if the effect was real, then it should also be present in other experiments, which also measured physiological arousal for different reasons. And so he went ahead and reanalyzed data from other studies, which, of course, weren't looking at precognition but that did uh, measure physiological arousal before and after a stimulus. And he did actually find evidence that presentiment was uh, being measured inadvertently in these other experiments. And so uh, even though precognition wasn't the focus of these studies, it's a promising sign that it is a real effect. Right. And Julia Musbridge did a meta-analysis of these presentiment studies later and also did. She replicated what Dick Bierman was able to do by finding data sets that used physiological measures while people were looking at calm and emotional images. And she found the same thing, that even in experiments conducted for other reasons, they, it still showed a presentiment result, which I, which I agree is very strong evidence that these kinds of effects are happening all the time, that uh, even when you're not even looking for them, they're happening. So it, it supports the notion that these uh, connections between probably everything is simply part of the fabric of reality, which today we might understand as a form of entanglement. Uh, and it strongly suggests then that 
the reason why we have psychic experiences is because of those connections. It's, it's the fabric of reality simply connects everything, and occasionally we become aware of it. That's what we call psychic experience. One of the reasons why precognition or presentiment is very controversial in, in the scientific community is that it, it seems to pose some very difficult problems and even paradoxes about how the effect could occur or even be supported by reality. So, for example, if it is possible to gain information about a future event before it happens, that seems to put us in the position of actually being able to stop that future event from occurring. And so if that is possible and we can act so that a future event never occurs, then the question becomes, where did that initial information come from? So there's a paradox here because there seems to be information about a future event which no longer has an origin. And so I'm curious how you think about this, Dean, given that precognition seems to make that possible. Well, if we imagine that the precognition happens, then it, you're right, it suggests that there has to be a future event in order to ripple backwards in time so that it can be perceived in the present. What you're talking about, of course, is the, the classic uh, bilking experiment, so-called. You, you bilk the future. You have information about it, and so you, don't, you, you do something which is not what that is going to lead to that future, and it creates a paradox. So one way of thinking of uh, reducing or eliminating the paradox is by saying that precognition is not 100%. It's not like you're, you're fated for a certain future, but it's only probabilistic. In that case, uh, you can still have a precognition about something in the future, in a probabilistic sense, uh, but the precise uh, outcome of that future can be different than, than originally is perceived. So I'll, I'll give an example from my own life. So I, I have a dream, it's very vivid, uh, of being in a car crash where... In the dream, uh, the airbag goes off and there's glass flying and all of the usual stuff associated with a car crash. And it, I remembered it very clearly when I woke up. And I don't usually remember dreams very well, so I, I noticed it uh, and was determined to avoid this car crash. So I went to work a different way. And the, the way I chose to go to work was safer in the sense that you get on the highway and there's a long... Um, lane to get onto the highway as opposed to the way you usually go where you only have a short way to get up to speed and to get onto the on the highway. So I figured well it's easier to end up with a crash if you take the usual way rather than this other way. So I, I go to the place where it's safer to get on the highway and I'm sitting at a red light and suddenly boom and my car is rear-ended and I've never been in any accident before and so this is like the, the one and only accident the airbags did not go off, but there was damage to the car. So when I was at the body shop and preparing to have my car fixed, I mentioned the dream to the, the guy in, in the body shop, and he said, well, maybe your precognition was real, except that it wasn't the one that you had in your dream. So there's two ways of interpreting it. One is that the dream was giving me a high probable event that was going to occur, and that's why it rippled backwards in time. Or... I misinterpreted the dream. And since I don't have accidents, that even though it's just a fender bender, essentially, I elaborated it in my dream. 
And so it, it, it was, in fact, maybe the exact thing that happened, the real event, except that it was an elaboration, or it was probabilistic, and I avoided a serious accident and ended up with one which was less serious, but still had to have some kind of accident, otherwise it wouldn't have come backwards in time. So that's, that's as a way of avoiding the causal paradox and that something must occur, except that it could be quite different and not as serious as the thing which is the original event that causes the precognition in the first place. So a, a possible explanation is that precognition is actually a sensitivity to a probable future rather than an actual future. And so in a way, I think this is another example of Psy confirming what we understand about physics, which is that the future is probabilistic rather than determined. And that is, of course, what quantum physics seems to allude to. Well, there are interpretations of quantum mechanics which strongly suggest that the present is influenced by the past, of course, but it's also influenced by the future. So the present then becomes a kind of reverberation between past and future influences. This doesn't explicitly say whether the future is probabilistic or not, uh, but it also implies that both the past and the future may be probabilistic in some sense. We don't normally think of the, of the past as having any probability associated with it, but on the other hand, uh, our, our actual, if you think about past events that lead to the present, some of them are very high probabilities, like we're no pretty sure what happened, but there's a ton, in fact, much more, many more events that happened where you don't actually know. You, don't, you only know in a probabilistic sense what may have led to the, your current present. So this pr provides a kind of a picture of the present as a dot uh, in, a, in a line with, with many lines com converging from the past and many lines converging from the future, all coming down to this one little dot, which we call the present. So each one of these lines going forward and backwards in time are probabilistic events, and maybe, maybe they do Im entail both. You have future and, and the future probabilities and past probabilities, which conspire in such a way as to give you the sense of the present time. And so the other thing is that this is a testable idea. Is the future fixed or is it probable? That can be tested and has been tested in two different ways. One is through remote viewing. And so Russell Targ uh, and his colleagues have done tests like that. And I've done tests looking at probable versus actual futures using forced choice tests, like card tests. So Russell's experiments in remote viewing showed that uh, the precognition was of the actual future, even if it was a low probability future. And my studies using forced choice tests repeatedly show that people are attracted to the probable future and not necessarily to the actual future. So I'm going to publish a paper, I haven't actually written this yet, but one of our online tests on the, the gotsci.org website, which is now going almost 20 years, we have uh, a lot of data, something like 90 million trials on a test which looks like a card test. And part of that test uh, is, is designed in such a way to tell us are people attracted to the probable future or to the actual future, independent of its probability? And the results of that experiment show pretty strongly that people are attracted to the possible future or the probable future, independent, well, in that case, it is dependent 
on the, the probability of the, of the future event rather than whether it actually shows up or not. And that then is a way of suggesting that when people have a precognition, it is of the probable event as of the time that they had the precognition. What actually occurs may be different, but at least when they have the precognition, that is the most probable outcome. You've been researching SciFX for several decades now, and you've contributed a great deal to our understanding of these phenomena and how we might think about them. Where do you see Psy research 50 years from now or just in the future? What, what questions do you think future Psy researchers will be most interested in? Well, I think as uh, quantum theory continues to develop that we're probably going to find more and more evidence of quantum biology. At some point, I expect we'll find that there are aspects of brain processing which are quantum. And at that point, I've been projecting this for 20 or 30 years already, that at some point, somebody's going to figure out that if the brain has quantum aspects, if it's a quantum computer or just has some some degree of, of quantum uh, connections with the rest of reality, that uh, occasionally people should have experiences uh, that transcend space and time. And so a graduate student will predict that if you have two people who know each other very well and you isolate them and you do some sort of stimulus uh, into one person's uh, face so that their brain lights up in a certain way, that you should see a correlation in in the distant person's brain because of this connection. So they'll do that experiment, and it'll work, and uh, suddenly psychic phenomena will will be invented for the 100th time. And at that point, the the previous uh, century or so of research, which has been strongly marginalized because we didn't know how to think about it, will become mainstream. It'll suddenly be... It's almost as though it's been in an invisible shield where you can't see this from an academic perspective. It suddenly becomes visible. And so we suddenly say, oh, okay, well, all that stuff was correct. We just didn't understand. We didn't know how to understand it. But now we understand that the brain is a quantum thing, and so these quantum entanglements are happening and so on. So that's the scenario that I think is going to happen um, probably over the next 50 years or so. And, and a lot of it is going to happen as a result of understanding more about the nature of quantum entanglement, how it relates to uh, living systems, and in particular in the brain. Well, Dean, again, I'm really grateful to you for coming back on the podcast and talking about your research. I, I do think that while sci research is still quite controversial as a field of study, I think certainly one day it will be recognized more broadly in science. And I've no doubt at that point you'll go down in history for your amazing work in this area and also your bravery and putting yourself out there in a time when this wasn't accepted. So again, really great to speak with you about your work, as always. Is there anywhere that you'd like to direct our audience to? Certainly your recent book, Real Magic, is well worth a read. Uh, well, to find out more about uh, what I'm doing or what I'm doing especially at IONS, uh, go to noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C dot org, or to uh, deanraden.org. And so those are the repositories for uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences and my own personal website. I would also like to add that I think one other thing that's going to happen in the future is the possibility of finding genetic differences 
account for her psychic talent. So we've already done some studies on this. Uh, there's certainly a lot of folklore about uh, psychic effects running in families. And we found some genes, and we're now working on confirming whether what we found is correct or not. But if it turns out that it is correct, it strongly suggests that there's an underlying biological basis for psychic talent. And that's important for a number of reasons, one of which is that it, it just the possibility of finding ways of significantly improving psychic ability, either through pharmaceutical methods or other methods, and also of suppressing these abilities. Because uh, I suspect, and I have colleagues who agree, that in some cases, if somebody is extremely psychically talented, but they're not able to control these, these connections uh, with, with everything, that uh, maybe some people are diagnosed as being schizophrenic, but actually they're just uncontrolled psychics. So what you, the way that we treat schizophrenia today is through a variety of different kinds of drugs, most of which are sedatives, and people don't like to take them because it makes them feel dopey. So what if we're able to cre create a new kind of pharmaceutical that is designed to specifically suppress psychic ability but leave everything else perfectly fine? Well, that might take somebody who appears to be schizophrenic and make them perfectly normal. Normal in the sense here that they're no longer overwhelmed by psychic connections that they weren't able to control before, but now perhaps they can. So I think that's on the agenda as something that is we're at the very beginning stages of, but within the next 50 years, the combination of much more precise ways of understanding genetics, epigenetics, and in addition, ways of editing genes, I think we're on the threshold of a whole new way of understanding psychic experience. That's fascinating. So that's the genetic underpinnings of psi, and that's what you're looking at at the Institute of Noetic Sciences at the moment. All right, well, thanks again for your time, Dean. Until next time. Very good. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. As always, I'm definitely interested to know your thoughts about the subjects we explored today, and I'll be responding in the comments on YouTube as well as on Patreon. Wherever you happen to be listening to this, clicking like or giving us a nice rating or a nice review really does help us out algorithmically, and uh, I encourage you to share this conversation with anyone that you think might be interested. Finally, also please keep in mind that Waking Cosmos is supported entirely by our community on Patreon. So if you do find some value in these conversations, you can help me keep making them at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. Now for those of you who are already supporting, thank you very much indeed. Alright guys, that is about it from me today. Until next time, I hope you have a beautiful day.